Psalm 15. Very short psalm, so we might finish a little bit early. I wouldn't hold your breath on that, but we might. Uh, you never know. Sometimes it's the small ones that have so much in them that it takes a little bit to, to get it out. Uh, but uh, Psalm 15. And this psalm uh, in particular does not have any indication really uh, as to its dedication or what the occasion was for its writing. Uh, but it is very, very similar to and very much in parallel with Psalm 24. And so there's a lot of folks that believe that it was written probably around the same time. And, and the events of Psalm 24, of course, was during the time of David uh, finally being able to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into um, uh, to, uh, Jerusalem, where it's supposed to be uh, after it had been uh, away from Jerusalem for so long, if you remember, they tried to move it the one time, and uh, they didn't move it the right way, and uh, that's where uh, 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 Uzzah reached out his hand and touched it and was killed, and they uh, stopped what they were doing, didn't end up bringing it on to Jerusalem at that point. David learned his lesson, he went back and finally got the right people and did it the right way and brought it back, and that was when Psalm 24 was written and written around that time period. And a lot of people believe that uh, because of the similarities between these two psalms, that Psalm 15 was written probably around that same event. Um, uh, there's, there's a description that's given <coughs> in Psalm 15 of one that is at home uh, in the church of God on earth and, and um, that, that on this side of heaven has some characteristics. Um, it's a description uh, that also can be a, a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect man while he was on earth and uh, lived in this life without spot and without blemish. But it's also um, an example of what fallen man, through God's grace, can become and should become in order to uh, be able to go to heaven. And the only way we can do that is through the life that the Lord Jesus Christ led and having his perfection placed on our account. And so we see this beautiful picture here in uh, Psalm 15 on that. It's divided into two sections, and it's very simple. Verse number 1 is the question. Verse number 2 through 5 are the answers. So it's very simple, just a question and an answer. It's a very simple division of the book. And uh, let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll jump into these verses one at a time and get through them. <clears throat> Lord... Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue nor doeth evil to his neighbor nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Very short psalm, but we have an, a question that is asked in verse number 1, and it is directed to God himself. Uh, we're not talking, we're talking about God the Father, God Almighty. Uh, some people would call it uh, Jehovah. It's written in all capital letters there, meaning the Almighty God, uh, the one that is the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And, um, and so we're speaking here that this is a direct appeal or a direct question 
uh, to God himself. And the question is simply this, and I, I think it's important to note that uh, in coming to, to acknowledge that in, even in just the addressing of it to God himself, there's an acknowledgement of, of his holiness, his righteousness, his, uh, the, the, the uh, infinite uh, characteristics of these things in his life and in his being and who he is. Um, and, and so this question is directed is uh, in recognition of God's position, his, his character, his being, all that he entails. And the question is, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? So this is a place where God abides. I mean, the infinite abides in this place. And the question coming, well, who, who shall abide there? Who's going to be able to uh, live there with you? And the idea and the, the implication and understanding here is not only to uh, be able to be in the presence of God, but because of that close proximity and the presence of God and being around him, to be able to have fellowship with him uh, in there. And so uh, all of this is entailed in this, this simple question. And uh, there's a lot to this because I think sometimes when we read um, maybe a psalm like this especially, we, we gloss over some things. We, we don't think through some things. But if we think about God and His holiness, who in the book of Ezekiel, he says he cannot even look upon sin. It, it's, it's detestable to him. He cannot tolerate it. And that's why for someone to be able to go to heaven, they have to have a record that shows perfection. There can't be any sin. There's no darkness in God at all. Uh, he can't tolerate little bits of it. And that's as long as you don't exceed this threshold, you're okay. It, it can't be any. Uh, there's absolute holiness in God. There's absolute righteousness in God. And if the heavens themselves are impure in God's sight, and they are, uh, the Bible teaches us in the end days that the heavens are going to melt uh, with a fervent heat. The earth is going to be destroyed. The heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. Because they're corrupt in God's sight. And I'm not talking about the, the establishment of heaven itself, but the heavens are going to be destroyed. Uh, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible teaches, speaks of this. And if the angels themselves are open to God's judgment and their fallen state, and even He chastens them for the, sometimes their folly, and they stand in God's presence so humbled at the holiness of God. And we're talking about angelic beings that are far holier than you and I are. They stand and are in the presence of God and they're so humbled by the majesty and the holiness of God that they have to take their wings and cover their faces in absolute humility. And these angels can just barely stand in God's presence and it's only by His grace that they do. And if earth and mankind are defiled, then why is it that we so often come into God's presence with a carelessness or a callousness or a... Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He wrote this question. Maybe this will clear it up. He says, Where angels bow with veiled faces, how shall man be able to worship at all? The unthinking many imagine it to be a very easy matter to approach the Most High. And when professedly engaged in His worship, they have no questionings of heart as to their fitness for it. 
They come into his presence without even considering, am I fit to even come into his presence? But truly humbled souls often shrink under a sense of utter unworthiness and would not dare to approach the throne of God of, of the God of holiness if it were not for him, our Lord, our advocate, who can abide in the heavenly temple because his righteousness endureth forever. We're living in a day where people approach God so carelessly, so callously in prayer. And I'm thankful that because of, of what the book of Hebrews teaches me, that I can come boldly to the throne of grace, but may I never come arrogantly. May I never come with the fact that I, 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 I'm able to just come to God as if He's my best friend or my best... Uh, I, I, there's, there's a reverence there. Do we understand this? And while he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and while he is one that loved us with a love that we cannot even understand or comprehend, and while he is a father to us, and while he does bless our lives, we as God's children need to come to him realizing and understanding our own unworthiness, and that there be a sense of reverence and respect coming to God's presence. I think we ought to be able to naturally go to God in prayer. But I don't think we should ever do it without considering the fact that it is only by God's grace. It's only by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and His application of His record on mine that even gives me the, the wherewithal to be able to commune with God, to fellowship with God, to talk with Him. The question that's being asked here ought to increase the recognition and the sense that we get of God's glory and holiness. Lord, if even the angels have to bow in humility and cover themselves in your presence, how can we as fallen sinful man even dare to hope to abide in your tabernacle, to dwell with you for eternity? And this is the question that the psalmist poses. Who shall dwell in his holy hill? And the idea of Dwelling is not just to come into God's presence and leave, but literally to, to abide there with Him, to stay with Him, to be evermore in His presence for eternity. He spends the next several verses giving the answer to this. I think it would do us well to understand what it is that God expects. And while these, these characteristics obviously were met in the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly His account can be placed onto our account, they also ought to be things that as God's people we should strive for in our lives. One of the first signs of God's presence among His people is that they begin to take a great interest in divine worship and recognizing God to be a, a God that deserves and, and, and certainly is worthy of all of the reverence, all of the sacredness that we can give to His being and who He is. Um, one of the great downfalls, I think, of Christianity in the day that we live is that there are a lot of churches, these, these, a lot of these uh, Word of Faith churches and New Apostolic Reformation churches that are out here that are teaching that people are deity, that you are little gods, that you rise to the level of becoming God. And in fact, they go so far as to say that God's hands are tied in this world unless you give Him authority to do things and they try to lift man up to a level of having authority over God. And then they try to diminish God and who He is and bring Him down to the level of a man who is weak and, 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 and has carnal uh, feelings and emotions like we're normally used to. I was listening the other day to a clip of Jesse DePlantis who 
said years ago in a message, and uh, he was talking about he went into his office one day and he started talking to God and, and he noticed that God was pouting. God was in a sad state. And Jesse said, I, I said, Lord, did somebody hurt you today? And the Lord told him, yes, Jesse, they hurt me today. And he said, well, Lord, I'm just going to stay here and cheer you up. The Bible tells us that there is not one man on this earth that can give counsel to God. In fact, when he talks to Job, he says, Job, where were you when I was doing these things? God is all-sufficient in and of Himself. He does not need man to come and comfort Him on a bad day. He does not need somebody to come and soothe His hurt feelings. We so, we so bring God down to a level of man, it seems like, that even in our churches we've lost a reverence and a respect for Him. I'm talking about even in our good Bible preaching, doctrinally sound churches. If we're not careful, we will begin to lose the reverence for God that there ought to be. Worship, when it comes to this idea of men dwelling in God's presence and fellowshipping with Him and having worship with Him, often takes the place of being man-centered worship. Have you ever noticed that? Even at our best, we still try to do things for what it does for us. If we're not careful, our worship will become very casual. I hated when I was growing up, every once in a while somebody would say, the, the man upstairs. Or I heard some, we were from down in southern Florida, uh, and a lot of southern type people down there, and they would refer to him as the good old boy, uh, or the big man upstairs. Can I tell you, that is, that is not my God. My God is a God to be revered, to be reverenced, that is all holy is all righteous, and if it were not for His grace, we would be consumed by His righteous judgment. And anything that we have, anything that we uh, can, can experience with Him, we owe it all to His grace, not to our merit or to our worthwhileness. If we're not careful in our worship, we become very casual with it. When you become very casual with it, it's not long before it becomes carnal worship. We get careless about how we approach God, and in our churches, we don't recognize the holiness, the infinite holiness of God. We don't recognize His justice. We tend to want to put all of the focus on praise. We want to put all of the focus on His love and the forgiveness, and certainly He does all of those things. But there also needs to be an understanding of who He is. And we spent some time a few weeks ago on Wednesday night dealing with the fact that Paul teaches that when we come to uh, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, he says that we're to be teaching and admonishing one another in those things. It's not all just simply praise. There ought to be doctrine in there. There ought to be exhortation in there. There ought to be instruction in righteousness in there. There ought, there ought to be uh, even corrective things in our songs of worship. We don't recognize God's infinite holiness the way we should when it is man-centered worship. There's no depth of, and by the way, let me just say this, and, and I'm so tired of people saying, well, uh, these, these praise and worship churches, they're all about emotion, it's all about emotion. And, and folks, I'm going to tell you something right now. When I worship, there better be some emotion. I'm not afraid of emotion, and neither should you be. Don't let people that are in doctrinal error rob you of spirit-filled moving of the heart in our areas of worship. If it draws you to tears, then weep. If it draws you to shouting, then shout. 
But may it be Holy Spirit given. And don't be afraid of emotion in worshiping God. I, I, think, I think because we've seen so much of this fake, this feigned faith, this feigned praise that's going on, that it has scared us to the point where we don't feel like we can show emotion in worshiping God. But I'll tell you this, I cannot see God the way that He is and recognize myself the way I am and not be moved at the love that He's given me and not be moved by the mercy and the grace that He's given to me and not for any reason that I deserve. There's emotion in that. There's a heart of thanks. There's a heart of gratitude that goes beyond things that we can even express with words. So how do you express them? With groanings which cannot be uttered even. With the spirit of emotion that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Worship then begins to develop when it's man-centered into what we want to experience. Rather than what we want God to experience from us. It all becomes about, do I feel good when I leave this time of worship? Rather than, Lord, I just want to give you praise. I want you to understand where my heart is. And I know that God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts even before we do it. But it becomes more about what we get out of worship when it's man-centered rather than what we can give to God in worship. This idea in the very first question that is used in this psalm, I think, is, is cause for pause for a moment to recognize who He is. Lord, who can stand? Who can abide in Thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in Thy holy hill? The Holy Spirit gives the answer, and He does so by way of giving some of the character that is to be found in men that will have this opportunity. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who ever fulfilled all of these in full. But they ought to be things that we strive for. It's here that we need to pause. Uh, that the only way we can have these things is by the working of the Holy Spirit in us when we get saved. You can, you can try as hard as you want to without being saved to accomplish these things that in your life, but unless they are the fruit of the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you're destined to fail. Unless they're produced in us by Him, we're destined to fail. And oftentimes, and I heard somebody say it this way, I'm going to try to phrase it the best way I can remember reading it, but he made this statement. He said, where the, where the fruit is seen, the root often is not. Meaning that this, this fruit that's generated that the, the, the psalmist is going to speak about here is from a root that's from the inside. It's not something that's an outward thing. It's an inward thing. It's something that's produced by the Holy Spirit residing, living, and abiding in us. And so he deals with three things here in verse number 2. He deals with the man's walk, first of all. Secondly, he deals with the man's work. And thirdly, he deals with the man's word. Three different things here we're going to see. And I want you to look at them with me in verse number 2. The answer to the question is this. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. So three things. His walk, his work, and his speech or his word if you want. 
Three things. Now, what about these things? Well, let's look at the walk for a moment. He says, first of all, he that walketh uprightly. The idea of walking uprightly is, is the idea of having a strong backbone, to be steadfast. Uh, an upright man is not one who's wavering and stable in his ways. Uh, this is one that uh, is vitally important, and I believe it's the, one of the reasons why it is the first one on the list. Because somebody said this years ago, your walk, uh, your, your walk talks and your talk talks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's a weird statement to say, but simply to mean this. That far more important than what your mouth says is how you live. Your walk portrays far more about your character than what you say. Because your character is never what you say or what you think about yourself. It is rather what other people see in you. Your walk is vitally important here. And he says... This man that's going to abide in the tabernacle, he's going to be a man that walketh uprightly. He's steadfast. He's unshakable in his faith. Then the second thing he says here is he that worketh righteousness. And by the way, uh, when, when, our, when our walk is what it should be, our work will be what it should be. Uh, when our steadfastness to the truth is what it should be, then it will generate and produce works of righteousness. This is, this is our faith. That is on display. James speaks about this. He speaks about dead faith or faith that is shown by works. It doesn't mean you have to have works for faith. But it is by faith that those works are produced. And faith without works, he said, is a dead faith. Faith always will produce works. Faith is something that will put, uh, works are, are something that will put your faith on display. And so his faith in the Lord Jesus and what he, he's done in his life is what produces a life of good works and not dead faith. Somebody said this, a lack of service to God shows a lack of interest in, design, in divine things. A lack of service to God shows a lack of interest in divine things. If I'm not serving the way I should, it's because my heart is not experiencing what it should. My walk is not what it should be. My work is not what it should be. And then he says, he that walketh uprightly, he that work and worketh righteousness. And thirdly, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Man's word, this speaking the truth in his heart. If you'll remember, the last psalm we dealt with spoke about the importance of things that are said in the heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the importance of having a right heart that speaks truth. Those that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus not only love to speak the truth with their lips but also seek to be true within. It's not just an external. And I said this, I think it was last Wednesday night when we were teaching, that it is possible to look good outwardly and to be rotten on the inside. But it is impossible to be right on the inside and not have that come out to the outside. You cannot be right inwardly and be wrong outwardly. The two don't mix. You can fake it outwardly, be rotten inwardly, but not the other way. It doesn't work that way. And so if, if our work is not what it should be, if our walk is not what it should be, if our speech is not what it should be, you mark it down, it's because the heart is not what it should be. And so these are those that speak the truth in their heart. They don't even lie to uh, their own hearts within their own uh, prayer closets and try to be deceitful to themselves because they know that God knows their hearts. 
They despise double talk and, and double meanings. They despise people that are uh, deceitful and uh, flattering and, um, and, uh, and say things one way when they intend to mean things another way. They, they despise those things. And so he starts off with these three areas. Our walk, our work, and our words. These are things that ought to be produced in the life of a Christian. They certainly were done by the Lord Jesus. He's the one who fulfills this entire psalm without question. And the one that desires for you and I to be fulfilled with the things of this psalm. It ought to be the striving of our heart. It ought to be the desire of our hearts to do so. Verse number 3. He starts approaching them from the back side of things and shows the negative side of things we should not be doing. And it says... He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. And three things here are given again. First of all, he that backbiteth with his tongue. (coughs) I think most of us recognize this today, that the tongue is a very difficult thing to tame. In fact, the book of James speaks of this. He says that the tongue is set on fire of hell. A man that can tame the tongue, the Bible says, and James says, can tame the whole body because the tongue is so hard to tame and bring under subjection. Have you ever noticed that? Men's tongues will bite far more damaging than their teeth will. And this sinful way of backbiting with the heart when we, uh, when we are thinking too, hardly of a na- too, too much of a neighbor in a certain way, our tongue does the most damaging uh, mischief to this person. It's not our actions towards them. Uh, it's it's the things we say about them. The tongue is not steel, but it cuts, and its wounds are very difficult and long to heal. And the worst wounds are not uh, given to the uh, edge of our face, but to our backs when our head is turned when it comes from a slandering tongue. So he that backbiteth not with his tongue, but then notice he says, <coughs> nor doeth <coughs> Excuse me. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Man who cannot control his tongue cannot control his actions. Look with me in the book of James. Hold your place here for a moment. Let's go to the book of James, chapter three, and just want to show you this verse. I know it's one that many of you have read and are familiar with, but it helps us to see it in God's word. James, chapter three, and verse number one. My brethren, be not, uh, uh, James 3, verse number 1. If you get to Hebrews, it's one behind there. So about towards the back half of the New Testament. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, we need to be steadfast on some things here. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word... The same is a perfect man, not meaning that he's without sin, but meaning that he's mature, he's grown, he's a a man of character. All right. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the what? The whole body. So when we come back to to Psalm 15, in uh, verse number 3, he speaks first of all, he that does not backbite, or backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil. His actions are controlled. Why? Because his tongue is controlled. 
If he can control the tongue, he can control the whole body. And so he doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Uh, he can bridle the tongue. He can with, with restrain himself from doing evil to his friend or his neighbor. And then I want you to notice thirdly in this one, he says, Nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. It's bad enough for us to slander with our tongue and hurt somebody with our tongue. But it is just as bad and equally as bad for us to take up a slander that we have heard someone say about someone. Somebody said it this way, a fellow by the name of Trap. He said, the tail bearer carrieth the devil in his tongue. The tail hearer carries the devil in his ear. And it's just as evil for us to give ear to slander as it is to produce the slander. And I, there's, there's a difference in slander and in tail bearing than there is in uh, a brother being overtaken in a fault and us as their spiritual trying to go to them and restore them. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about slanderous words, things that are caused to be injurious to our neighbor. We're there to try to backbite them. We're trying to, trying to get at them, trying to cause harm and hurt to them. And someone that will give ear to In fact, somebody said it this way. If there would be no ear for slander, slander would cease. The carnality of our flesh strives and, and thrives on hearing uh, bad news. Have you noticed that? That's why news stations get such ratings. Because they tell you all the bad news. I remember years ago we started a radio station down in Florida. Uh, for our church, and uh, we were trying to get some news uh, on there that we could have for people just to have uh, world news, and it's hard to get some people that produce news to uh, allow you to use it on your radio station, and <clears throat> we were struggling with that, and I went to our radio station director, I said, listen, we can go on the internet, we can find some stuff, but I said, I'm so tired of hearing about all the bad stuff in the world, why don't we go and try to find some good news to share every day, and so we made a good news news cycle on our, on our radio station there. And, you know, men, men tend to gravitate, don't they, to the bad news? And this is not something that should be becoming of a believer or somebody that's a Christian. We shouldn't thrive on those things. Who's going to dwell in the tabernacle of the Lord? He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. And then verse 4, he says, "...in whose eyes a vile person is contemned." But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. And so this man who's going to dwell in the tabernacle of the Lord is one who's going to have some discernment between things that are evil and things that are uh, good. People that are vile. And he's speaking here of people, not necessarily their works. They're, they're characterized by their works, but he's speaking of the people themselves. Because notice what he says, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. He's not just condemning their works, he's condemning the person. And, and a righteous person, a person that uh, is, is trying to, uh, to have fellowship with God and, and is trying to hold to the truth and be steadfast, is one that literally will not condemn just the works of a person, but will condemn the, the person in their character of doing the works. The very fact that they are doing that. Now, if they ever come to a place where we can reach them and they can repent of those things and get those things right in their life, then we're welcome to, we're, we're going to be welcoming them in with open arms. But until they do such things, that even themselves are condemned by us. And then they honor them that fear the Lord. And while we are probably better at condemning the vile, have you ever noticed that in our circles? We're not quite as good at honoring them that fear the Lord. We don't put as much emphasis on that as we do on condemning, do we? Again, because most of the time our carnal nature likes to look to the negative things rather than the positive things. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. In the New Testament, we've been taught that we shouldn't 
swear by anything. We should just let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. We ought to be men and women of our word. Men and women of honor. And the idea that uh, when the Lord Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews chapter number 6, the Bible says that God swore by Himself. He swore an oath to Abraham when He could swear by no greater. He swore by Himself. And uh, for uh, uh, by his own oath, in the New Testament, we don't swear. The Bible teaches we're to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. We're to be men of honor, regardless of entering into an agreement with someone, and we suffer loss. If we suffer loss, we continue to be men of honor, and we honor our part of it. Uh, one fellow wrote it this way. He said, if a man keeps his honor, regardless of his losses, his loss will be bearable. But if his, his honor is lost, all is lost. It's the type of character of a man that the Bible says dwells in the tabernacle of God. We have fellowship with him. Verse number 5, he says, He that putteth not out his money to usury... Now, this doesn't mean just loaning money. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, making a profit off of some of your assets or things that God's given you. And the Bible teaches of the parable of the talents. But usury was used in the New Testament to mean an unjust weight being put, an unjust burden. Uh, The idea of someone that had means uh, taking advantage of and doing it with the intent purpose of keeping the poor under subjection. And to try to bring about their ruin, to try to keep them in bonds to them. And this is the type of usury that is spoken of in the negative sense in Scripture. And uh, so he talks about this. And uh, he says, "Who putteth not out his money to usury. Uh, it's, it was a hateful thing. It was something that was intended to eat up the poor in their, in their condition. They would charge intolerable rates, rates that could never be repaid. Uh, in fact, even in the Old Testament, if you uh, were indebted to someone uh, every seven years, they were, if you were not able to pay it off within that seven years, they were to forgive that indebtedness. Um, there was some grace to be shown there. Usury would not do that. Usury would hold them to it. And if you remember the parable of the unjust steward that Jesus told of the one who uh, forgave his servant much, and then that servant went and would not forgive his servant little, uh, that would be an example of usury, the uh, the servant who would not ex- uh, forgive his servant little. And uh, then he says on verse number 5, Nor taketh reward against the innocent. Bribery and unjustly accusing people uh, was rampant during the Old Testament times and the justice systems back then. And uh, th- this was a dishonest thing. They were not to do these things. And then he goes on to say this, He that doeth these things shall never... Be moved. Again, the only one to have all of this character impeccably and without without any kind of uh, violation of them would be the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so, the only way that we can ever hope to have any of this is by allowing the Lord Jesus to work in our lives and to produce these things in us. The question being, Lord, who shall abide in Thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in Thy holy hill? There ought to be a deep reverence in approaching God. We need to know who He is and understand who He is. That is a great wonder and a great privilege that we even have to approach Him. And the fact that we need to come to Him with a heart that is doing the very best that we can to have the character that the Lord Jesus longs to produce in us. And it says that this man who doeth these things shall never be moved. 
There's no storm that will move him off of his foundation. He'll remain steadfast. I was listening to a testimony. I say a testimony. It was a, an interview of a fellow who used to be uh, a uh, serving in ministry in a solid Bible-believing uh, church. And uh, about eight years ago, he came out of that and, um, and no longer goes to church. And in the interview, he said he is no longer even a Christian. He does not even believe in Christianity anymore. And I thought, how could a person who had been uh, taught, knew the, the Scriptures, had served the Lord, had been involved in church, had read his Bible, had walked with the Lord, had spent time with him in prayer, get to the place where he even denied, uh, he, in, in, the, in the interview he says, I don't even know at this point if God even exists. And I thought somewhere along the way, something failed. I, I'm fearful that we oftentimes are whitewashing the sepulcher. We're wiping the outside of the dish and making it clean. We teach and we preach from God's Word things that we ought to be living like outwardly, and, I, and certainly those should be done. But if there's not a transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts, we are prone to falling away from these things. So he says if these things, if we do these things, that we shall never be moved. He's not going to be shaken from his foundation. Uh, his anchor will not be moved. And uh, like Jesus, uh, whose dominion is everlasting, a true Christian, one who's trusted Christ as a Savior, will dwell in the, uh, in the tabernacle with the Most High. And it doesn't matter whether death comes, whether judgment comes, we will never, never, never be removed from this blessed place of fellowship with Him. I am eternally secure. Not because of what I have done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me. And so I hope that will help you today. Things that we ought to be striving for, it's, I believe, a great picture of the one who did live this way, Lord Jesus, and the things that He longs for you and I to have in our lives as well, to be produced in us. So let's stand together.